still so much of this debate, at least, is focusing on the larger platforms. It's being drafted and debated with the Facebooks and the YouTubes of the world in mind. Uh, but the problem is that obviously Facebook is not the internet. Likewise, terrorists do not only use Facebook. They use so many other platforms. So in order for regulation to be effective, it needs to take into account the larger and wider ecosystem. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector, tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're talking about online regulation. If you've listened to any of our earlier episodes, you'll know it's something we cover a lot as we consider what platforms and governments can do to counter the threat of terrorism online. Throughout today's episode, we look at why online regulation is so important, how the online regulation landscape has evolved, and focus on some of the specific challenges around regulating terrorist content online. We'll also discuss influential regulation that's been recently adopted, as well as regulation that's currently being considered, including the Online Safety Bill in the UK, and what this means for tech companies in practice. My guests today are Luca Bertuzzi, who's a tech journalist who specializes in digital policy and European affairs. I'm also joined by Asha Allen from the Centre of Democracy and Technology at the European Office, where she coordinates the organization's advocacy engagement on the Digital Services Act and European Democracy Action Plan, with a focus on content moderation and impact on civic space. We also get insight from Jacob Bernson, Head of Policy and Research at Tech Against Terrorism. When considering legislation to regulate the internet, Governments are faced with finding a balance between keeping people safe online whilst protecting digital rights. Closely linked to freedom of expression and privacy, digital rights ensure people can access, use, create and publish digital media, as well as access and use computers, other electronic devices and communication networks. As Asha explains, they're fundamental in the internet age we live in. Digital rights for CDT is really about ensuring democracy and individual rights um, and making sure that those two aspects provide the very foundation to the digital revolution. You know, making sure that online platforms respect human rights by being held accountable and actively participate in meaningful transparency in order to hold them to account. But at the same time, it's making sure that the government bodies who are responsible and obligated to uphold our rights uh, under international law or national law are also held to account for their responsibilities and also to curtail any censorship or, or surveillance. So that in a, in a nutshell, but I often talk about digital rights and I can go on for hours about it. But um, I would say that the primary challenges have been how such rights are actually safeguarded in proposed or adopted legislation. And that's from a government perspective. But at the same time, the other challenge we see is to kind of continue addressing the issues that we see across the industry in effectively and more appropriately addressing systemic risks to those rights and how those challenges actually manifest on the diversity of platforms that we have. The online regulation landscape has been evolving fast over the past five years or so, as new legislation has emerged to regulate the internet in different jurisdictions. One of the foundational pieces of such legislation was the 2017 German NetzDG law, which I asked Jacob from Tech Against Terrorism to explain. Users are able to report uh, what they think is illegal under German law uh, content to platforms, which then have 24 hours to assess whether that content is illegal or not, depending on, on sort of what type of illegality it is, uh, of course, and then uh, remove it if it is, quote unquote, manifestly illegal. 
So that is one of the first sort of landmark regulations that uh, that really covers terrorist content that we have seen globally. But since the NetSDG was introduced in 2017, we have seen a drastic increase in regulation that covers terrorist use of the internet. Supporters of the NetSDG legislation see it as a necessary and efficient response to the threat of online hate and extremism. Critics view it as a draconian-style censorship regime, forcing social media platforms to respond with unnecessary takedowns. As Jacob mentioned, since the introduction of the NetSDG, there have been several other pieces of legislation which aim to protect users online from harmful and terrorist content. One of those is the Digital Services Act, or DSA, a proposal by the European Commission which is set to come into effect later this year, which we'll get into shortly. First, let's hear from Luca about how online regulation has evolved in recent years. The overall trend that we are seeing is one where regulators are stepping in in the online space. So far, it has been a very deregulated market, and we are seeing more and more attempts to make up for the lost time. I think that, in fact, what we are seeing is a backlash from the Trump era. Uh, When we had uh, Obama, there was a lot of optimism around uh, digital platforms and online technology in general. I think that uh, the election of Donald Trump uh, was a sort of wake-up call, which was followed by quite a lot of scandals, especially concerning, but not limited to meta. Therefore, what we are seeing now is, especially in Europe, regulators are uh, trying to establish some clear rules for these platforms. So you mentioned Germany's NetsDG. Indeed, Germany has this tendency to uh, create a regulatory trend uh, and to uh, try to influence EU legislation uh, by passing national law. Uh, Now, this can play out in different ways. A lot of people in Germany are now concerned that uh, the DSA might water down uh, what NetsDG has brought in. Uh, But indeed, uh, in both cases, uh, there is an attempt to uh, establish some clear rules on how content should be moderated online, uh, transparency for online platforms, and sort of Uh, force online platforms no longer to be this uh, wild west where they can uh, set up their own rules, but to uh, at least uh, explain what they are doing. And in some more extreme cases, like for illegal content, to take action uh, within a certain uh, legal framework in terms of urgency, in in terms of timing. So we know that changes are being made, but why are EU policymakers choosing to act now? It seems to me the online world is becoming the new telecom market, which is the most regulated market in the world. Uh, and indeed, the the way I look at this is the com- this commission said, we want to use technology. We want to be a part of the digital a- era but we need to put certain conditions for it. And the DSA is uh, the most horizontal legislation on online services um, that we have seen in 20 years in Europe. 
It also has the cloud to become a standard setter in international terms. Uh, as we know, the, the EU has the regulatory power to do. The motivation is indeed trying to restore the power balance between online platforms, which have become the largest companies in the world, and uh, regulators' jurisdictions. Therefore, we see these attempts of, on certain things, act with sectorial legislation, like the, the terrorist one, saying you need to take this down uh, within 24 hours. Whereas in the, in the medium term, establishing this sort of horizontal framework that should apply not only to the largest platforms, but essentially to all the players in the, in the digital economy. When it comes to specifically tackling terrorist content online, there are two new pieces of legislation due to come into force in 2022. The first is the European Terrorist Content Online, or EUTCO. Jacob explains what this law sets out to do. It is arguably the most impactful regulation globally that, that sort of directly targets and, and only targets terrorist content online. Uh, many of the other regulations that we have seen targeting terrorist content online also focuses on, on other harm areas, but this one specifically targets terrorist content online. It's a piece of uh, legislation that was introduced by the EU Commission in 2018, uh, and after that it's gone through a couple of revisions and about a year ago it was announced that it had been passed by the European Parliament and it's going to come into effect in in June. The TCO has a, has a couple of sort of key provisions. Uh, the most talked about uh, is the one hour removal deadline. How this works is that following a direct removal order from a so-called competent authority, which is a body that each member state in the EU will, will be able to assign, tech platforms will have one hour to remove terrorist content. So to be clear, this is not the, the one hour removal deadline does not go for all terrorist content or suspected terrorist content, but only for this content that has been directly reported in the removal order format to the to the tech companies. This is one of the key um, key principles of the of the law. There is also a provision that says that competent authorities may instruct specific platforms to introduce some I think they use specific methods as a terminology in, in the law, but it's written to sort of be understood as automated tooling to remove and or identify terrorist content. And this will be based on an assessment that competent authorities make about particular threat pictures on, on these platforms. In one of the earlier drafts, this was actually a requirement for all platforms operating in the EU. But this has since been changed, which is arguably a, a very good thing. And then platforms will also need to produce transparency reports on how they are complying with the regulation. And I think here it's also important to stress that this regulation will apply to every company that operates in the EU and all companies who don't uh, yet have an office or a representative in the EU will need to also assign uh, such a uh, representative. So uh, this regulation has been criticized by multiple uh, human rights and digital rights organizations. At Tech Against Terrorism, we have also been openly critical of this uh, regulation in the past as well. So, for example, some of the criticisms that have been brought against this regulation is around a very short timeline. Uh, one hour is not a very long time to assess uh, content. 
attack against terrorists and we we flag that if you're a smaller platform and you literally just have one person working for the platform it will be very difficult to at times be able to respond to these requests and removal orders and be able to execute them within the uh, the, t- the relevant time frame and obviously human rights activists have also pointed out that this could lead to overzealous uh, removal of, of content uh, some other criticisms that have been raised are, are around the the competent authorities, so the bodies that are able to issue these removal orders. Member states are able to assign these uh, themselves, so that means that you could, um, in theory, end up with a police authority in France as the competent authority and a, let's say, sort of a digital policy body in uh, Germany, for example, carrying out and issuing these removal orders, which might be fine, but some criticism has been around the fact that there's no expectations in the legislation around what competent authorities are supposed to to have in terms of expertise around counterterrorism and potential human rights implications. And this has been especially uh, concerning, according to some to some activists, around the fact that competent authorities can actually issue removal orders across borders, and that this could, in theory, lead to extraterritorial application of national speech codes. So even if these competent authorities are supposed to interpret terrorist content as the definition provided by the EU terrorism directive, there could still, due to there being no no sort of standardized expectations on these bodies, be a risk of them uh, interpreting differently and it leading to potentially uh, legal speech. So there have been some concerns around there, but I think uh, at Tech Against Terrorism, we have also try to encourage the the, the EU uh, to to improve this regulation. And I think we have seen some some really um, good signs here and where we really should commend the, the EU Commission. And that's that's one of them is around smaller platforms capacity. Uh, so for example, in the version of the bill that actually passed, we saw that smaller platforms could be excused if they fail to respond to to removal orders within one hour, for example. So that's obviously a, a very good sign. And also, um, when this uh, regulation was passed, we called on the EU to clarify how they will support smaller platforms to, to meet these requirements. And I believe in October last year, it was actually announced that the EU will, pr- will um, provide, I think, up to 4 million euros of funding to support initiatives uh, that will help smaller platforms in, in complying with the law. So that's a really, really good sign that I think should be uh, applauded. The other piece of legislation due to come in is the Digital Services Act. The DSA has been put forward by the European Commission to hold tech platforms to account for their moderation of content, especially illegal and harmful content. Online regulation is not only being developed at the EU level, more and more countries are considering their own legislation to regulate the internet. We recently saw a new draft of the UK Online Safety Bill, which, as Jacob explains, covers many areas of online safety. Essentially, the UK Online Safety Bill asks platforms to have a duty of care of their users and uh, really ensure that users aren't exposed to both illegal and harmful material. And this is something that has been uh, one of the key sort of controversies with this bill is that it focuses so heavily on harmful material. So harmful in this context could mean anything that causes serious distress to a to a human being, which of course is something that you know we should try to prevent from happening in the online space, but it also means that it's incredibly difficult to define and operationalize for tech platforms. 
um, it should also be clear that a lot of this content will be legal content, so content that isn't illegal but might be, as, as per the definition of the bill, uh, be harmful. And um, there's also been some concerns around the fact that the digital secretary uh, in the UK can actually define new types of harmful content. So some human rights activists have flagged that maybe uh, that shouldn't be a power that's uh, invested um, in a politically appointed uh, representative. Platforms will also be asked to deploy technical solutions to identify terrorist content. Uh, and that actually uh, applies both to publicly and privately communicated uh, material. So there might be, um, depending on whether the bill passes or not, this this bill might actually also impact encrypted channels and and uh, and services. So, but again, the online safety bill, I think, is it's a very ambitious piece of legislation. Uh, but some of the concerns have actually been that that it's maybe is too ambitious in the sense that it focuses on such a vast array of content. So everything from the priority harm areas that it lists, such as terrorist content and child sexual abuse material, to other types of uh, harms, uh, such as, uh, I mean, I mentioned the the, the fairly vague definition around harm meaning uh, content that can cause serious distress. It also tries to to regulate other types of abuse, such as cyber flashing, for example. So it's a very sort of wide bill but it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens now with it and see if if um, if it will pass. Lucas says there's interest from other countries to bring in their own legislation, but it can be more difficult for smaller jurisdictions. Germany tries to go ahead and influence the, the regulation uh, with a first mover advantage. France, it's always trying to do its own thing and will probably build on uh, EU legislation for even more regulation. And these are the countries that have been paying more attention to online content, of course. For instance, on uh, from smaller players, from smaller countries, I do not expect a wave of new regulation simply because for them, uh, the internal market is very important. They are very reliant on scalability and that uh, online businesses can easily move around that is completely different compared to heavyweights like France and Germany, where, uh, of course, their um, national market is enough to force platforms to follow their regulation. For what concerns the more international level, I think we have seen uh, quite a lot of activism uh, in China, uh, which is a rather closed uh, market, but they've sort of even played in advance than European regulators and managed to get through some very interesting uh, legislation, for instance, on uh, manipulation of algorithms. Indeed, as I said before, the DSA might as well provide a new standard for platforms simply because of the size of the European market. Platforms might have an interest in replicating uh, this elsewhere or Uh, regulators elsewhere might have an interest in looking at the EU content moderation rulebook. From a digital rights perspective, Asha explains that whilst it is encouraging countries are concerned about this, we should be mindful of the differing implications of each piece of legislation. Developments at member state and EU level have really been rapid over the last few years. And I would say they all need our attention uh, as individuals and as civil society. But 
all of these different examples that I've mentioned have had varying outcomes. The French law differs a lot to NetSDG, differs a lot to what Denmark is proposing. And of course, all of those differ in terms of uh, what the DSA is putting forward as well. So there's a lot that has been done and it is encouraging to see that this is high on the political agenda. But those disparities that we see in those differences are also a cause for concern as well. Jacob believes as more jurisdictions bring in online regulation, there's a risk of creating a fragmented regulatory landscape. This is one of our core concerns, especially since a lot of these companies work across so many jurisdictions. It means that they're going to have to comply with so many different set of rules, which, you know, again, obviously every nation has the, has the right to legislate within their borders. But at the same time, uh, the fact that there are so many different proposals and provisions being introduced across the world, it will make it very tricky, and especially for smaller platforms to, to comply. So for example, we have, um, we have some regulatory efforts that are really quite um, in opposition to each other. So I mentioned in the, in the UK, for example, platforms might actually be uh, punished if they don't remove content that is legal, but is, but is classed as or classified as being harmful. Countries like Poland and Brazil have actually introduced proposal that seek to prevent uh, platforms from removing exactly that type of content. So allowing them only to remove content that is strictly illegal. So not allowing them to remove content that's based on their own terms of service. So what I mean by this is that obviously um, tech platforms generally remove clearly illegal content because they obviously have a legal uh, obligation to do so but they also remove content that isn't always illegal. So for example, in some jurisdictions, hate speech isn't illegal or uh, having a photo of a swastika isn't illegal. Platforms still remove such content because they want to have a uh, a pleasant environment for users and they don't want to maybe risk advertisement revenue due to there being toxic content there. But what the bills in Poland and Brazil are actually trying to do is, is to prevent platforms from, from doing this and only allowing them to remove clearly illegal content. Uh, and often this is used using the language of, of culture wars, uh, sort of implying that tech companies are silencing conservative uh, opinions and voices, which there's very little evidence for being the case. But this is still used as sort of a, a measure to, to try to prevent tech platforms from removing certain types of speech. And the concern here is that this might actually empower some some toxic and extremist language that we have unfortunately seen from from mainstream politicians. So this is really not a very, this is a really sort of unwelcome intrusion of the culture wars in the online regulatory debate. And it's also something that we have seen to some extent in in the UK as well, where the current culture secretary has said that uh, the online safety bill is, is anything but woke, sort of <laughs> implying that that uh, the online safety bill will, will deal with the uh, perceived threats of wokeness uh, culture in, in, in the UK. And this is somewhat ironic, given that the online safety bill actually has some, some pretty significant freedom of expression concerns that have been uh, widely documented by, by several uh, human rights activists. Hear more from Luca about what these new pieces of legislation could mean for tech companies. One aspect of this continuous regulatory work in Brussels is that at the end it will be those with the largest, better found legal departments that will be able to manage all these legal requirements. 
whenever you are a company, you are meant to comply with the legislation of the market you operate in. This is nothing new. So, you know, a policymaker could just tell you, this is not my problem. However, the single market are risk insofar as SMEs, small, even smaller companies, have a problem with scaling up to other markets because regulation is simply too big. And when we talk about online content, these are not the most profitable companies necessarily in the internet economy. Some of these platforms might be just very small or with a small uh, turnover. Asha agrees that tech platforms will face challenges adapting to this various legislation. But that EU regulation could also be a really great opportunity to set a gold standard when it comes to regulating content online. So again, it goes back to that global precedent, right? So the the EU at this moment in time is outlining, we've already had the terrorist content regulation, as you mentioned, and the DSA is very likely to be finished quite soon. Um, But we don't see other jurisdictions, or at least of that kind of size and scale, also having uh, big kind of reformations of their legislative frameworks if we think to section 230 or other jurisdictions and and what's happening there so these are going to have a huge impact absolutely huge impact on on platform governance on content moderation and the practices that that platforms will then have to consider and the obligations that they're going to have to consider for the, the global context because of the standards that they're going to have to stay up to when it comes to the eu law and legislation So this is often why, you know, CDT is an organization that's based both in Washington, D.C. and and in in Brussels as well. So we often think about this from the the global perspective. And as I mentioned before, that spillover effect that we saw with GDPR and how that could influence other areas is a cause for concern. But I also want to mention that it is an opportunity, of course, if the EU is able to set a really comprehensive gold standard around this that is really informed by civil society participation. It has the flexibility required in order to to modify where necessary. It's a multi-pronged, multi-stakeholder approach. It could really be a defining piece that's, uh, you know, for the better of all the different stakeholders involved. But will these new regulations be effective in tackling terrorist use of the internet? Jacob says he's not so sure. I would like to, to sort of state from the, from the offset that uh, you know I'm I'm not a regulator, I'm not a policymaker, so I'm not going to pretend that I that I know how to best solve these issues. And I, I do have tremendous res- amount of respect for the people who are trying to to really deal with this with these issues. So this is not at all sort of a judgment on on their commitment or, or their or their willingness to, to respond to the problem. Because I think we can all agree that terrorism of the internet is a problem that, that requires an effective response. I struggle to see with many of the, the regulatory approaches that I've seen uh, that, uh, that they will be effective and disruptive terrorism of the internet. And this is due to a number of, of reasons. And I think, first of all, I think it fails to account for how, how terrorists use online platforms today. So... You know, in our work at Tech Against Terrorism, we, we often see that uh, terrorists predominantly use smaller platforms uh, because this is where uh, they have an ability to build more stable presences because uh, smaller tech platforms don't have the same uh, resources and capacity to, to respond to this exploitation as some of the larger tech companies do. We also see that uh, increasingly tech uh, terrorist groups use alternative technology platforms. Uh, we also see that they increasingly use terrorist-operated websites. 
However, still so much of this, this debate, at least, is, is, is focusing on the larger platforms. It's, fo- it's being drafted and debated with the Facebooks and the YouTubes of the world in mind. Uh, but the problem is that obviously Facebook is not the internet. And likewise, terrorists do not only use Facebook. They use so many other platforms. So in order for regulation to be effective, it needs to take into account the larger and wider ecosystem to do so. And it needs to also then take into account the fact that smaller platforms uh, don't have the same capacity to respond. So, for example, you can't really introduce a steep or a tight deadline, for example, and expect that a platform like Facebook, which has tens of thousands of content moderators on their team, and a platform which is run by quite literally one guy from their bedroom, which is often the type of platform we're talking about when when we talk about platforms that we work with and where we see most terrorist activity. We can't expect those two to be able to handle these regulatory requirements as well as each other. It's just impossible. Um, So uh, there needs to be more consideration here for for smaller platforms and for uh, their uh, uh, lack of capacity to to respond. And for example, if you're thinking about a mechanism like introducing financial penalties for smaller platforms, I mean, many of them barely have any revenues. So it's not really going to be a an incentive for them to do better if, if, they, if they know that they actually can't pay the, the fees anyway, right? And for the ones who can, obviously, this is going to be a, a big hurdle towards helping such smaller companies grow and really sort of uh, try to compete with some of these larger uh, giant tech companies. So generally, I think lawmakers are are incredibly bad at providing details on what data or evidence is driving regulation. For example, why is a specific time frame required? Why does it have to be one hour? Why does it have to be four hours? I mean, I think it makes intuitively, it makes sense that, oh, the quicker you remove it, the better. But what, what data is actually driving this? And this is what I meant before when I said that the absence of online counterterrorism experts in these discussions uh, is problematic in the sense that to us, it's so clear that, that often this regulation is, is based and grounded in what seems to be political motivations rather than actual evidence. Asha also highlights the digital rights concerns around EU legislation. So from the outset, I just want to say clear and comprehensive regulation is absolutely necessary. Our rights need to be enshrined in these legal frameworks and different stakeholders need to be clear about what their obligations are and responsibilities are under law. But of course, a multi-pronged approach is needed. Regulation must be supported by increased due diligence of platforms to ensure that their voluntary activities don't infringe upon our fundamental rights and those activities that they do around content moderation hold, hold up to par. Um, and so this is why we kind of find what where we find ourselves in the midst of the development of the Digital Services Act, right, which is being negotiated as we speak. And we are civil society. We are deeply invested in ensuring that this is this is done right. We know from the terrorist content regulation that EU lawmakers can certainly have the best of intentions, but can adopt laws that just simply don't stand up to the pale. The regulation doesn't include all the necessary safeguards needed to protect individual or collective rights online. And even more so, the lack of clarity around judicial oversight really brings into question whether the regulation actually stands up to the rule of law as well. So with the work we're doing right now, we just simply cannot see a repeat of this happening in the Digital Services Act or indeed any of the other plethora of legislation the EU is finalising or developing as we speak. It's no secret that counterterrorism legislation can be abused by governments. 
particularly by authoritarian countries, which can use it to target dissent, something we recently saw with Russia designating Facebook as an extremist organization. So how big is the risk of online counterterrorism legislation being abused in non-democratic countries? Asha says there will be knock-on effects. I think this is where we turn to the potential global precedent of things like the DSA or the online safety bill. Because if you imagine, there's often a spillover effect when it comes to these huge horizontal frameworks, just like GDPR had an impact on on, uh, data privacy and, and data protection. The DSA is very likely to have a similar impact. And again, because the online safety bill is working operating in the same time frame, we can imagine they're both going to have an impact. And so thinking about the use of those provisions under more authoritarian governments is actually a huge cause for concern. We've dubbed the uh, Article 11 as the Navalny Clause, actually, to kind of align it with present crises that we're seeing. And so legislators really have to think about the impact they're going to have beyond their own national or even European jurisdictions. This may be picked up um, in a way and unfortunately can become laws of unintended consequence when thought from that global perspective. Jacob agrees that democratic countries need to consider the impact of their laws on other jurisdictions. In fact, Freedom House, in their Freedom of the Net report last year, sort of openly stated that uh, poor online regulation was a key reason to why global online freedoms declined for the 11th year in a row. So this is you know, a long-standing trend now. And this is something that that doesn't only happen in countries that we would maybe call authoritarian. Instead, we actually see that a lot of these online regulatory proposals that are introduced in in Europe, for example, have been uh, cited, directly cited by non-democratic countries or countries uh, with a poor democratic or human rights record to inspire their own uh, sometimes very draconian uh, legislation. Here, democratic governments really need to consider their own roles. If we don't live up to the values that we profess to hold, how are we ever going to be able to hold other countries accountable in this area? This is really an area where uh, democratic governments need to do better and really uh, pay attention to, to what impact the laws that they are introducing could have abroad. Obviously, governments and policymakers have a right to legislate in their own jurisdictions and introduce whatever measures that they think are um, important in, in their in their own um, nations. But at the same time, it's not appropriate to sort of brush off these, these concerns and there needs to be more uh, consideration paid to the potential negative impact and inspiration that, that um, online regulatory approaches can, can have elsewhere in the world. Let's get some final thoughts from Asha about what tech platforms should be doing to protect the safety of their users without infringing on their rights. Very much so. We touched on, on some of this before and, and, you know, the need for regulation to set that kind of baseline standard for legal obligations for online platforms, um, whilst at the same time having comprehensive due diligence actions. And, and platforms can actually refer to existing human right, international human rights standards for this. So we have the UN guiding principles on, on business and human rights. And this is a fantastic framework um, for some of the considerations that you know, businesses and industry need to take into consideration when they're thinking about the human rights impacts of their products and services. Some of this we're seeing coming into the Digital Services Act. We do have provisions on risk assessments and mitigating those risks. And and that's outlined in legislation. But of course, platforms can refer to these existing international human rights standards in their own efforts, in their own voluntary measures, engaging 
with existing uh, networks such as the Global Network Initiative that conducts uh, independent audits and, and be able to build on those recommendations. That's one very clear aspect in terms of looking to what already exists to kind of help them inform uh, their due diligence obligations. But they, of course, can expand upon this as well, making sure that engagement and consultation that they have with civil society or representatives of marginalized groups is truly meaningful. Going back to the work that I did on on online gender-based violence, a lot of the advancements that we saw in the last, you know, seven or eight years around this area was because one, it was concretely identified as a key issue on, on specific platforms. And there was a lot more openness and willingness to speak with experts who could bring an intersectional perspective to help inform different measures when it comes to content moderation practices or mechanisms or aspects that they had to consider when it comes to their internal practices. So it is, again, compliance with the the regulatory frameworks that are out there, but also going above and beyond in their due diligence and, and making sure that their users are safe, because I'm sure, you know, that's a priority as well. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we work closely to support tech companies to counter terrorist use of their platforms, whilst, of course, respecting human rights. As Jacob explains, a key aspect of our work involves helping platforms actually understand the minefields that is online regulation. It's such an an increasingly important and complex area for tech platforms, and especially for some of the smaller tech platforms that we we work with, uh, since they don't have their own legal teams or their own policy teams who can help them understand these often really complex areas. So what we have done is that we have conducted a a piece of research called the Online Regulation Series, in which we looked at regulation in around 30 global jurisdictions. So we looked at upwards to, I think, 100 different uh, legislative proposals from, from these 30 jurisdictions and really put them together in a sort of easily digestible handbook, which we have then shared with with these tech companies. And a lot of the, these materials are also stored on the knowledge sharing platform, uh, which is an initiative that we launched last year. And that's sort of a, that's a tool that collects several educational materials and, and resources for tech companies to, to help them get better at responding to terrorism to the internet whilst respecting human rights. We've also done a few more bespoke initiatives where we've gotten uh, lawmakers, policymakers and tech companies together to sort of behind closed doors to help them understand emerging regulation from, from specific jurisdictions. So we're really trying to help to bridge the gap that can exist between uh, policymakers and some of these smaller tech companies and really make sure that smaller tech companies get a fair shot at, at being able to comply with uh, regulatory efforts. A huge thank you to today's guests, Luca Bertuzzi and Asha Ellen, and to Jacob Bernson from the Tech Against Terrorism team for his expert insight. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.